Hi, this is Reg Harvick, and today I'm here with Elizabeth K. Joseph, who is a developer advocate at IBM uh, and uh, a, an increasingly well-known mainframer. I've kind of gotten to know her through various social media outlets and such. And um, uh, Elizabeth, uh, Liz, I guess I can call you, um, tell us, how did you end up on the mainframe? Hey, Reg. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so it's, it's actually an interesting story, as, as many of our, our paths to mainframe are. Um, I was working um, on distributed systems. So I spent about 15 years of my career as a Linux systems administrator. Um, I worked on various um, projects related to Linux and systems, and I worked on OpenStack. I wrote a book on OpenStack. <laughs> I worked on Apache Mesos at a container startup in San Francisco for a while. Um, and then I, I kind of got to a, a place in my career where I was doing a lot of things, like I was thinking of settling down and having kids. I was thinking of changing a bit my career tra trajectory because things were going so fast in the container space. And I was like, you know, I, I've been on this path and I've worked with the same people for a very long time. Like we all worked on Linux together. Then we worked on OpenStack together. We all moved into the Kubernetes space together. And I was like, what else is out there in, in the computing space? So um, it was actually the uh, one of the people from the Cloud Native Foundation knew someone at IBM working on IBM Z. And he's like, you should talk to Liz. And so IBM reached out and said, hey, do you want to work on mainframes? And I was like, no. Because <laughs> I, I didn't know what they were. And um, I, you know, I have what, what many people in distributed systems um, felt um, was this legacy view of them. And having worked in containers, some of the projects I worked on were like getting people off of the mainframe. Mm. Um, and because we didn't really, I, I didn't really understand the technology. Um, and one of the things I learned in those migration systems, their projects was that they would get to a point where the migration would kind of stop and that was usually after we made all of the easy parts into microservices. <laughs> yep. um, no, I wouldn't say that, that that is a universal experience um, and things definitely are changing on the distributed side, um, but that was really what, what we encountered. So I, I then had kind of curiosity about it. So I continued talking to folks at IBM. Um, I actually requested a technical interview <laughs> um, with, with, with an engineer to sort of talk about um, where I could I could find my place in the organization because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't learning from scratch. They actually mm. wanted to bring me in with my, my Linux background and my distributed background. And then it, it was just a really good fit. Um, I have been able to cross train with everyone in my org. Like I teach them about Linux, they teach me about ZOS and I've, I've had a blast. Awesome. <laughs> so, and this, this was all, um, I got, I was hired at IBM uh, about a uh, little under two and a half years ago. Oh, wow. So you started learning mainframe about two and a half years ago. Yeah. So you're like Z next gen. <laughs> yep. <laughs> cool. Hey, have you been to share? Uh, I went, I, well, uh, I have not um, been to a real one. I mean, an in-person one. Yeah, so I yeah, just did, yeah. I just did the virtual share at the beginning of August. That was my first one. Oh, so. cool. Well, I'm glad you were able to do that. I, I hope we'll see you lots more, especially once shares. Yeah real again. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm, I'm so excited because when I started learning about the space, I learned that Share was created in 1955. Yeah. Like, in fact, is... it's, it's anniversary was just a few days ago. Yeah. It's, it's astounding to me how, how far this goes back. And like, I can now be part of like the oldest, you know, volunteer computer organization yeah. user group in the world. That's exciting. Oh, yeah. 
Well, and just the, the whole living history of, of the mainframe and, you know, as, as you and I were chatting beforehand, you know, how uh, is basically the, the living history of the mainframe really has a trajectory into the indefinite future. And, and you know, these podcasts are part of, you know, a, a message in the bottle I'm sending a thousand years into the future because of the fact that I really think that, you know, what we call the mainframe today is going to continue to be really the heart of some of the most important processing historically. Um, that said, I mean, obviously you clearly have a sense of that as well um, as, as a developer advocate, but you know, as I think developer advocate, a lot of different pictures occur to me, you know, because I'm gonna guess it's not just about one particular language or one particular platform or one particular approach, but I'm gonna guess that probably you have everything from Python and Java to COBOL and everything from uh, you know, legacy databases, including DB2 um, all the way up to, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe stuff running under containers. Uh, uh, well, I guess I shouldn't be telling you, you should be telling me. <laughs> yeah, so because of my background in distributed system and since I've done a lot of work in open source communities, um, I was I joined the team to sort of speak to that community, to talk mm -hmm. to people like myself. Um, and so it's it's been a lot of fun because my my learning path has been very much dictated by what I'm curious about. Mm, nice. And that experience mirrors a lot of like the developers and systems engineers on the Linux side, what they're interested in. So mm. part of my role as a developer advocate, back when we could travel, I was doing a lot of open source conferences um, with people I knew. Um, and I, I want to say that that half my audience at a lot of these talks was like people with morbid curiosity about mainframes <laughs> and they would walk out of the talk being like I had no idea these things were so cool and then I'd have talks throughout like I'd, I'd be able to you know I'd be in the hallway at the conference and people would be like ah, I went to your mainframe talk because I happened to be sitting in that room and it was actually really cool and I'm like I know right <laughs> So um, for me, it's, it's been connecting with, with people on that level, first of all, just as an introduction. Um, because for me, like I didn't understand that enterprise computing was something real. I thought it was marketing and fluff. And I, I didn't really understand that there was like actual systems that were, you know, seven nines of, of availability, mm. like, and that storage could be as reliable as it is on, in, in, you know, in, in the IBM Z space. And so that's something I had to learn and something I've, I've started to communicate with my, my fellow Linux folks. Um, another thing that's been really fun to talk about is I, I went through Jeff Bisti's uh, COBOL class. like oh, on, on, and, uh, and so I learned a bit of COBOL. And I, one of the things that, that I really took away from that was that it's not actually that hard. Mm. And so I, I mentioned that at a conference and someone tweeted about it and they're like, oh my gosh, Liz just said COBOL's not hard. And I'm like, I'm like, well, it's, it's really about the environment that it sits in. You have to understand your data sets yeah. and your environment and everything. So it's, the, the language itself is not um, so difficult. So it's, it's been interesting communicating with people about, you know, how, how COBOL has evolved over the years. There's like a CI system involved in the development of COBOL now. Um, and then there's a lot of tools out there that you can use it with. Like I'm using VS Code to, to do like all of my, like the, the playing around that I do with COBOL. Um, and so that's, that's been something that I, I talk to a lot of people about too, because they think, you know, mainframe is all green screens and, <laughs> and, and archaic things. And certainly that can still be part of it. And I actually love that side of it, but there is also this modern side and that's, that's what I try to interact with developers on for the most part. Cool. Now VS code, that's the term that, you know, sort of being bandied about a lot today, but those of us who learned 
you know, uh, the, the language back in the, the old days, uh, <laughs> might not be sufficiently feel, familiar with it. Maybe if you could just take a moment to describe how VS Code and COBOL kind of, you know, uh, interact, shall we say. Yeah. Um, so to, to pull up a little bit of my own background, since I'm a Linux systems person by, by training, um, I never really used an IDE. Um, most of the programming I did was just systems programming, very like, uh, but like, not like, low-level systems but like high-level systems like bash mm -hmm. scripts and and various like Perl and python and like okay. you know pretty everything that i wrote was was to the service of, of the operating system so i just used vim like vi oh wow um, very simple not so even VS code yeah so like i that's all i ever used for like you know 15 years and <laughs> um vs code i actually started using it um when i started doing some more python programming um and started playing around actually with cobol so it, using an IDE at all um, was a very new experience for me. Um, and so I, I quickly learned that it's actually pretty useful um, because it does things like um, if you have the COBOL plugin to the VS Code IDE, you can have syntax highlighting. It will point out like um, indentation ideas and like other things that, that it wants to, to do with your code to make sure it's it's well written and, and like syntactically um, mm. it can point out errors and things. Um, and then you can also run it um, if you're, you're connected um, to something that can run it. <laughs> um, so it's having having that saves a lot of time. And I, I didn't fully appreciate that when I was really just running more simple things on, on machines I had full control over. Um, but mainframe land is a very different place than just running you know, a shell script on a Linux box. So <laughs> now, I mean, you, you certainly do give yourself away as being a systems person just by your, your preference for scripts. Um, and, and my <laughs> sense is that you, given a choice, you would choose scripts over a compiled language uh, in, in a generic context. Is that a fair assertion? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and, and you know, it's funny because I'm in the same place. I'll, I'll have to admit with some embarrassment that for the longest time, my favorite thing was just to pull out basic, you know, either Applesoft basic or GW basic and just code <laughs> something up in that. Um, just because having it, you know, code up interpretive and run it right away was, was more valuable to me mm -hmm. than having the advanced functionality. Though once I discovered Rex, you know, it's like, oh, uh, wow, this is, this is like interpretive you know, on steroids and then some, um, but, you know, just such a different experience as a systems person myself, you know, being able to, you know, put something in place right away and have it running versus having to write, for example, an exit and assembler. Um, that said, um, you know, do you have favorite compiled languages? Uh, not really. No, I mean, most of my experience is still with, um, you know, with, with Go and Python. And, I, you know, I, I spent so much time writing Perl early in my career that it's mm. still like part of my soul. So yeah. <laughs> I still find myself like using Perl on personal things sometimes. Everyone's like, Liz, that's so old. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, it's really good at information parsing. <laughs> So, but yeah, I never really got into compiled languages, honestly, like even, um, even Java, mm -hmm. which is something that I, I've, I've in interacted with, like on, on the periphery for most of my career and even more so now in mainframe mm -hmm. land, like I never learned Java. Um, so that's actually been something interesting lately because we have a lot of, you know, clients using Java and I'm just like, ah, ask the Java person. <laughs> Cool. Now, as a developer advocate, I assume you probably have to interact with a lot of people who do have preferences for languages that are other than your favorite ones. Um, how do you bring that all together? Uh, for the most part, um, the, the, I'm, I'm really lucky that, that we have a lot of people who work on other things. So I can sort of be 
the introduction to that, and then I can move them on to the right documentation or the right person. Um, because really what my focus is, is really on the Linux side and like Python and Go and some of the more um, uh, modern interpreted, interpreted languages. So there is plenty of work to do there <laughs> mm. that I can, I can make sure I connect people with the right person. Like I, like, you know, one of the things that we do a lot of developer articles on is, is kicks. And mm. I really, I have not gotten into to kicks at all yet, but I know who to talk to. So yeah. <laughs> it's really yeah. leveraging my network, both at IBM and, mm. and, you know, externally in this amazing community that we have. Well, that's the neat thing is, I mean, the, the mainframe ecosystem seems to have just taken so naturally to social media that you, you don't even notice we've done it. We're just, oh, we're there. You know, and, and, and you're, you're such an active part of that. You, you are one of the people that's most visible, for example, on Twitter. And so, uh, you know, to, to sort of see what's happening on the mainframe, you're sort of part of that pulse. Um, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about some of the different parts of the community that you're interacting with. And I guess also you, you mentioned you'd written a book. Uh, what sort of, of uh, writing or presenting are you doing now as a, as a mainframe developer advocate? So when I, when I joined um, IBM, for the most part, I was just going to the open source conferences that I'd always gone to. Um, and whereas like three years ago, I was giving talks on CI, CD pipelines with containers, I suddenly switched over into giving what, giving like, what is a mainframe talk and what is, what open source software is running on mainframe talks. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was really funny encountering people who've known me throughout my career and being like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I'm like, believe me, this is really cool tech and like getting really nerdy about the hardware and like all, the, all the system stuff that I got to work on now. Um, so that was kind of where I started. Um, and now, um, you know, with COVID things changed a lot. And I found that the value of like going to these open source conferences was much less because I'm not having those all the way conversations anymore. Mm. People aren't accidentally ending up in my talks. And, right. um, and so like, I, I kind of scaled back from doing the open source talks. So now what I'm doing is, is much more um, targeted exercises and workshops. So I did um, one for mom relaunch recently, which is mother, it's a, 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 an organization that helps um, women get back into the workforce after they've mm. taken a break for kids. Um, cool. I'm, I'm also, um, I'm doing one for uh, veterans getting into the into the tech workforce. So I'm doing like a workshop for them. Um, so I've been doing very like uh, tackling, um, bringing in underrepresented minorities in tech. Um, cool. So doing a lot of workshops and pretty much just, I mean, showing off things that, that feel easy to me, but are really interesting to people who are new to the platform. Excellent. So things like, Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, no, like you, you can run a website, like that's fun. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, yeah. it's not like super, you know, it's, it's not hard for me, mm -hmm. um, but it does mean it, it gives people the satisfaction of feeling like they can build something and create something that's theirs and really make it their own. And that's kind of the hook that we use to, to bring people in. So a lot of my presentations lately have been sort of that kind of bring, bring people in and then we can move on from there to bring them into an internship or an apprenticeship or, you know, whatever their continued learning is from there. Cool. I was going to say, have you met Dr. Cameron Say? Because he's doing that. You have yeah, we haven't. I, I think just like you and I, like we haven't really mm. interacted directly. Um, but I, he is around, and we mm. sort of chat on LinkedIn sometimes. And he's he's doing great work. Um, oh yeah, he's one of my personal heroes. He's also one of the two uh, uh, professors who recommended me for the master's degree I just finished. So, so oh, I, nice. I, I owe yeah. him a, a great debt, but I, I just really look up to him. So any yeah, opportunity. So, yeah, he's doing great work in the the. Uh, um, HBUs. Mm, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Now, uh, that said, um, I guess we're sort of uh, running up to the uh, end of our time here, but uh, I, I wanted to ask you just a couple more technical questions before I ask you to sort of tell us about the future. Uh, and specifically, I'm, I'm curious if you had a chance to work with USS and whether or not how you contrast that to applications running under containers, either um, under, um, you know, a, uh, a hypervisor such as VM or directly under ZOS or ZOS these days. Yeah, so I have um, used USS and it's um, <laughs> it's a little clunky. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's, it's funny because some of the things that I, I expect to be there in, a, in like a bash environment are not. Oh. Um, so it's that that's that's taken some learning. Um, mm -hmm. And there, I forget. I, I, I wish I had the name of the tool, um, but there's a there's a tool that now it does like AI stuff on on your commands. So if you type the wrong command in USS, it'll correct you. Like if you type a Linux command, it'll like say like actually what you want is this other thing. Oh, um, and that's it's it's actually like an x86 platform thing, but they ported it to Z. Um, and so I, I I was actually playing around with that for a little while because that was super helpful because some of the things just. I'm, I'm so used to Linux and I, I, I honestly, I haven't really used many other Unixes. Like I used Solaris um, for a time when I was playing around with Sparks like long ago, but I, I hadn't really played with, I hadn't really used another like Unix style environment. Um, so that's, so, so when it's Linux based, it's just a lot easier for me. And that's, mm. you know, so the using USS was a, um, a, a shift, um, but, but it was fun. I mean, it has been, it's been good. And I actually, I'm, I'm working on a, a regular expressions challenge um, for, for an upcoming project that I'm working on. And we're using USS. So I'm using, you know, like awk and said and, and things that, that are available there. And I'm like learning exactly what's available for me to do some data parsing. <laughs> I'm, I'm just writing an article about the regular expressions or at least the wildcard characters that are used by the three different mainframe external security managers. And I got to say, oh, <laughs> the, the proto regular expressions, I mean, because regular expressions predate computing, but mm. you know, just barely, but, but um, the, the idea of using wildcards you know, was built into each of the three ESMs differently, you know, and so the star, the asterisk, the, uh, the splat, you know, um, has a completely different meaning in each one of them. And, and so um, I'll have to let you know when that one's out because I think- it's Yeah, I, I, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I can send you a, a presentation at some point uh, of my mainframe security, Rosetta Stone, I actually have a slide about that. Uh, but that said, um, taking a look now at, at uh, Linux under VM versus Linux under containers under ZOS, have you noticed uh, any really important contrasts between the two? No, and, and part of that is because it's intentionally trying to be very much the same. Um, kind of the, the idea here is that, that Linux is Linux, and regardless of where you're running it, um, it's going to behave mostly in the same way. Um, the, one, the one area that's, that's notably different is, is networking. Um, there are a lot of, um, I mean, even, even in distributed systems, like networking is a little tricky and you have to really understand at a fundamental level how things are communicating. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have, we have things like, you know, Project Calico and like other, other like open source tooling. And then there, of course, IBM has a lot of proprietary networking um, stuff that you have to deal with. So networking is really the big thing um, that I find is different and storage. Um, mm -hmm. But for me, storage hasn't really become a problem, mostly because I'm working in like lab environments where <laughs> that's all kind of just handled like quietly for me. So. Nice. Okay, so now it's time to predict the future. Um, or as I like to say, I've sort of coined a word and I'm using it in other things I'm writing, I call it predict. And that is what, you know, is, uh, the, they say the best way to predict the future is to make it happen. You know, and so that's what for me prediction is, is to say, well, here's, here's what the future is going to be if I have anything to say about it. Uh, and so as you look to the future of, of the mainframe and enterprise computing, um, if you have anything to say about it, which I think you probably do, um, how, how do you see it playing out in the medium and long term? 
so, I mean, this, this is obviously going to be colored very strongly by my own experience, um, because I, I, I do believe in distributed systems. Um, I think there is a, a huge need for them, especially on the edge. And I think there's a lot of really fascinating technology um, that exists in, in the space of microservices and um, especially like the read-only side of things where things are um, can come and go and you don't really care about, you know, the life of one VM or container. Um, and and I, I love that space. Like I, I would go back and work there. I'd be happy to. Um, but the thing that I've learned again with like enterprise computing and things on the mainframe side is just like the stability and the um, security, um, the fact that like all the crypto stuff stuff happens on the hardware and doesn't take away from general processing. Like that's, mm. that's fascinating and very important. And I think for things like machine learning and data crunching, like it, it, I, I tell people that like, if they were to build a machine for blockchain, it would look a lot like a mainframe because it's got all that built-in crypto stuff. It's got so much power and it's like built for data processing. Like that's what they've done since the beginning of mainframe time. Like all the companies who are traditionally in the mainframe space are dealing with data. And that's why they have a computer. <laughs> that's why they had a computer in 1964. Um, so I, I kind of see, uh, you know, I, I really believe in, in IBM's messaging around a hybrid cloud and, and hybrid environment that includes uh, mainframe in it, um, whereas the mainframe is doing like the heavy lifting and the security and uh, all of the like really mission critical components of the mm -hmm. business. And then you're farming out another area of your, of your business to the cloud um, and, and sort of endpoints and, and other like x86 um, systems. Um, and again, like Linux one also plays a role here because if you want your Linux systems near your data, you know, it's it, stuff runs really well and, and all the um, advancements that are being made on Linux in order to make it leverage like the mainframe technology and hardware um, has been really amazing and it, it's so fun for me as an open source person. Um, it's watching like what IBM has been doing in this space because like for something very, very basic, like OpenSSL. Like if you wanna use SSL on Linux, you use OpenSSL and it's got support for the mainframe hardware. And like, you don't have to compile something special. It's not something proprietary. Um, it really is just built into your system. So suddenly you're using SSH and it's using the mainframe crypto hardware. Like that just, it just works. Yeah. Um, so this, I mean, this is not a, a very far future prediction. This is actually mm -hmm. happening now, um, but I, I think I, I see more of it um, because it, it's, it's a really powerful combination. And I, as I see more people like me becoming aware of the technology, um, I think there'll, there'll be greater recognition of, of how powerful the combination between uh, mainframe and distributed systems is. Well, I think it's neat. One of the things you sort of indirectly referred to there is, is the idea that, you know, traditionally, except in a place of, of constant innovation, the past is one of the best indexes to the future. And now that the mainframe has been around for so long, it really has established enough of a, you know, positive legacy of, of history. And, and one of the things that is there is back in the late 80s when IBM announced SAA, System Application Architecture, which was basically about being able to run a, an application on multiple tiers and not knowing or caring which tier the part that you were dealing with was running on, but just, you know, having the local stuff you know close to you and the stuff that needs to be on a you know reliable engine and so that 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 whole concept you know is is so essential to exactly what you're describing which i think is really cool um so now uh any last thoughts uh, that you want to leave with everybody as as we sort of uh conclude a, a far too brief interview given how much we could talk about <laughs> Um, I, I would say I, I want to encourage people to check out mainframe hardware stuff if you haven't done that yet. I, I find a lot of people don't really dive deeply into what, what's going on inside of the machine. And I, I sometimes encounter people, like I went, to one, I went to Poughkeepsie a couple of years ago and I wanted to see the mainframes. And some people are like, why do you want to see them? You don't need to see them. And I'm like, no, mm -hmm. 
It's an experience <laughs> to go into a data yeah. center and to learn about that hardware. And it, it changes so quickly. I mean, IBM releases a new one every couple of years and it, it changes. So if you haven't looked at the latest hardware recently, just like had a, a nerdy, you know, mm -hmm. tour through through a data center, like totally do it. If, once, once we can do such things again, it's mm -hmm. it's a lot of fun and it it really like reinvigorates me and, and a lot of people like me who are, you know, you know, we sit in our, in our offices all day and are like, oh, you know, computers, but actually getting a tour and, and, and even like just reading about about some of the hardware out there. It's it's really fun and reminds you of what you're working on and how, why it's special. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Liz. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I'll be back with another podcast next month. But in the meantime, check out the other content on Tech Channel. You can also subscribe to their weekly newsletters, webinars, ebooks, solutions directory and more on the subscriptions page. I'm Reg Harbeck.